0: The president of Ukraine, Volodymyr Zelensky, has been such a powerful communicator during the most recent invasion of his country that it can be hard to pick just one appearance, one video clip that demonstrates his skill. But I asked the Atlantic's Franklin Four to try.
1: I mean, I think that the—I'm uh, going to go for the cliché, which is the one in him in the streets with his crew, where— they defy Russian propaganda and say, we're here. We're still here.
0: This clip was released just a couple of days into the war. Russia was pushing a rumor that Zelensky had fled. This selfie-style video, shot on a dark Ukrainian street, with the president in a green t-shirt and stubble, was Zelensky's answer to the rumors.
1: There was a repetitiveness to it. A poetry. Yeah. It was both rousing and strangely calming. To have that effect of of reassurance and also to have this underlying we're still here, which is kind of, in a way, a rousing battle cry, I think is very sophisticated.
0: You know, the video that stood out to me was from last week. When Zelensky was addressing European Parliament, we're fighting just for our land. and for our freedom. And it wasn't so much what Zelensky was saying. It was the fact that the translator
1: choked up. yes Yes. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Look, Zelensky is an entertainer. He was one of the most sophisticated media moguls in, in his country, in his region of the world. Yet there's something about what he's pulling off that I think that it feels authentic in the moment, but there's something so direct about the way in which Zelensky is communicating with his people, with the world. I do
0: wonder a little bit, If Zelensky's background as an actor, if it takes away anything for you from this political performance he's doing, because it is a performance, even if it is authentic.
1: I don't think so, because, uh, well, he's still there. He's putting his life on the line. And the fact that he has this entertainment background, I think, is, you know, should be incidental to the way that we react to it.
0: Today on the show, the rise of Volodymyr Zelensky. How long can he meet the moment? I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick around. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Volodymyr Zelensky didn't have a particularly auspicious start. He was born in central Ukraine in 1978 Years before the dissolution of the Soviet Union, his hometown was kind of rough and
1: industrial. He came from one of the longest cities in the world. The longest? Yeah, it's 80 miles long. It's like one long strip, essentially, of blast furnaces and steel plants. It's a Russian-speaking town. Zelensky was born there. He grew up in a fairly academic family. His mother was a computer scientist. His father was an engineer. They were Jewish, although didn't really identify heavily as such. Is that notable? It it is notable because he was an outsider in Soviet society because of that fact. But he was coming of age just as the Soviet Union was falling, which meant that the possibility of freedom was out there. And as a teenager, he just started to find ways to touch the world beyond the Soviet Union. Like what? He loved to listen to English rock, for instance. He would sit underneath the underpass in the city and busk on his guitar playing English rock songs. And he lived in a city with a lot of roughnecks. And so there was an occasion where he was playing on his guitar and a hooligan came up to him and basically smashed his guitar over his head. And he came in basically and told his friends, like, you know, Ukraine is just not ready for us yet. But he was still trying. He was still trying. And he and his friends were all really taken with this emerging comedy scene. It was like a thing, not just in Ukraine, but in the whole former Soviet Union, where for a lot of the former Soviet Union, comedy represented like, a certain ideal of freedom. Like, obviously, it stood in contrast to a lot of the bleakness of late Soviet life, But also there was this freedom that was embedded within comedy, which is that you could tell jokes about the people who were in charge. You could make fun of them. Oh, so it was a way of like exerting power. It was a revolt against power, I think is the way that I would put it. You know, during the Soviet period where it was so hard to express a political opinion outside of your own family's kitchen, suddenly all these things that people thought were being said in the form of uproarious jokes.
0: It's interesting to me to see Zelensky's earlier life and how he's often doing a couple of things at once. Like he's in a comedy troupe, but he's also getting a law degree. And it's not just that he's an actor, but he's a businessman, right? He, he founds a production studio. So he's often operating in a couple different ways at once.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that probably he represents kind of a post-Soviet character who is familiar, just kind of bursting with ambitions and ready to take advantage of all these possibilities that were open to him. He did have this kind of boundless ambition. I mean, he had his mother in his head. His mother didn't especially want him to engage in a career in comedy. And so I think that she pushed him a little bit in the direction of law school.
0: Like any good mom, like have a backup plan. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Yeah, but he understood that he was sitting on something big when he was doing improv comedy and taking part in these competition shows. He and his comedy troupe, after they made it on Russian TV, ended up going on tours. They were going from city to city, and it just kind of kept leading him from one thing to another. So from these comedy tours, he started making his own movies where... He was always this kind of um, bumbling, everyman character who somehow manages to fall in love with, like, a beautiful woman who's, like, beyond him, and everything ends up swell.
0: Was he a household name in Ukraine?
1: Yes. He was a household name throughout the former Soviet Union. He was regionally famous. But there was a moment in 2014 where... Ukraine goes through political upheaval and Russia invades the country in order to reassert its control. Russia has deliberately and repeatedly violated the sovereignty and territorial integrity of Ukraine. And, and Zelensky is kind of confronted with this question that he's largely ignored throughout his, lo- his life, which is, who are you? Are you Russian? Are you Ukrainian? What's your allegiance to your homeland? And he decides to give money to the Ukrainian army, which is incredibly ragtag at this moment. And that puts him on the wrong side of Russian authorities. And it's at that moment that he moves his production company from Russia to Kiev. He opens up an office there. He starts to learn Ukrainian better uh, because, as I said, he was a Russian speaker for most, you know, for his life. That's so interesting to me that he wasn't even really speaking Ukrainian. But it's very common. It's a very common thing. It's like the country was linguistically divided between Ukrainian and Russian speakers.
0: You mentioned 2014 as a real turning point for Zelensky personally. It also seems like a turning point to me professionally, because it's a year later when Servant of the People, the sitcom about a teacher who becomes president of Ukraine after going viral for giving a speech about corruption when that starts. So can you tell me about his evolution professionally?
1: Yeah, a servant of the people is kind of a it's a little bit of a hacky conceit for a comedy where this person kind of out of the blue ends up becoming president of the country. He doesn't really trust any of the people, the elites in the country, so he brings all of his old friends into government. Uh, His bumbling friend becomes the minister of defense. His drunkard (laughs) 'er ne'er-do-well friend becomes foreign minister. And kind of lo and behold, they all end up succeeding much more than you would ever expect them to based on their educational background or experience, because at the end of the day, they're all good-hearted people. And so he writes this show. He stars in the show. You know, he's playing this role of every man who becomes president of Ukraine And in a way, it felt to his friends like he was speaking aloud about what it would look like if he ran for president himself. He was rehearsing his lines, if you will.
0: Do you think of it like that? Because it is notable to me that Servant of the People, the show, happens, which, as you said, is sort of this like goofy, the scenes I've seen, it's like veep, but even sillier and slapstickier and weirder and then pretty quickly Zelensky's production company registers Servant of the People as a political party in Ukraine and it just makes you wonder like was this always the plan
1: right you know I think that it was in the back of his head Hmm. one of the things about Ukraine is that um even you know it, it has this um it has this deep yearning, I think, for democracy and to be part of Europe, but it's also kind of haunted by its Soviet past. And there are all these oligarchs who are lurking within the country who have ties to Russia. And there's this sense... That you don't really know who's pulling the strings, and so with Zelensky, there was a sense like, who was pulling the strings? What exactly was his attitude towards Russia? I mean, there was an oligarch he seemed to be beholden to—the guy who owned the TV channel, right, where his program aired. Exactly, an oligarch named Kolomoysky, who was definitely extremely corrupt and 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 thuggish. And so the question was, was Zelensky going to act independently or was he going to just get elected president in order to let his oligarch off the legal hook?
0: It's interesting because Zelensky's rise is tied, as you've said, to this Ukrainian billionaire. And he, of course, broadcast Servant of the People, right? hmm. How did Ukrainians internally feel about that mishmash?
1: I think that they weren't totally sure what to make of it. In the show, one of the main plot lines is that the Zelensky character goes to war with the oligarchs. Hmm. That's basically the subject of the show in season one. And, you know, I think that Kolmoysky certainly in his own head thought that he owned Zelensky and that Zelensky, when he got elected, would do him a lot of favors. And during the campaign, it was pretty clear that Zelensky was paying surreptitious visits to Kolmoisky, who was in exile then. I think Ukrainians wanted to believe the best in Zelensky, and they were disappointed in the rest of the elite. And so he ends up winning in a landslide. 73% of the vote. Yeah, and in office, his performance has been has been mixed. He hasn't done exactly what Kolmoysky wanted him to do ever. But on the other hand, there were certain anti-corruption measures that he took that felt maybe slow walked or where he just didn't have his heart in it. I mean,
0: you've alluded to this. Zelensky was not universally loved before Russia invaded. Like The week before the invasion, a top Ukrainian journalist wrote a column for The New York Times and said, Zelensky was seriously in over his head. Do you think he was?
1: I think he was. I think he was. I think that Ukraine is a very difficult country to govern, and especially given the two big problems that he faced, which is, one, he had to reform the economy to to weaken the grasp of the oligarchs. And the second is that he was having to negotiate a peace settlement with with Russia, you know, both of those tasks are basically impossible ones to perform adequately, and Zelensky wasn't performing them adequately.
0: When we come back, how the task before Zelensky changed as Russian troops advanced deeper into his country. The first time Frank Ford saw Volodymyr Zelensky acting like a wartime president was during a speech he delivered back in February. These days, we've gotten used to seeing Zelensky looking kind of haggard in his military t-shirt. But back then...
1: He was still wearing a suit in the speech. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, the speech, like so many of his addresses, was aimed at multiple audiences simultaneously he toggled between Ukrainian and
0: Russian.
1: He broke into Russian and made an appeal to the people of Russia to not support this horrible act of aggression, to resist it, to recognize the the common humanity of Ukrainians. And it was an eloquent plea delivered with great dignity. You know that was the first time where I thought, oh, this is impressive. He's communicating at an extremely high level and speaking from the heart in in a way that feels almost cringy to describe in that sort of fashion. But I do think that ultimately that's been his strength as a communicator this past these past ten days.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's clear that is a top target for Vladimir. Putin. So much so that the U.S. reportedly offered him this flight out of the country to establish a government in exile. When he refused that offer, did it surprise you?
1: It didn't surprise me at that point. You know, I think that there's this momentum that the Ukrainian resistance to the invasion has acquired. And by the point that that offer arrived, it was like the country had collectively decided that it was going to put its life on the line and resist. And for him to bail at that moment would have been so deflating. I would I would imagine that Russia would have basically succeeded in conquering the country by now.
0: I mean, there have been reports over the last few days about multiple assassination attempts against Zelensky that have been thwarted. How much credence do you give to those? I mean, it sounds like you're saying you think he's willing to die for
1: this fight. That's what he's more or less said himself, right? So I don't know how much credence to give to these specific reports of assassination attempts. Uh, there's so much so much information warfare that's happening right now, and everybody's trying to move global opinion. And so it's hard to know what's real and what's not real. But it certainly wouldn't be surprising that that would be a primary objective of the Russian army. I mean, one only needs to look at Putin's record of um, of murdering people he's considered to be dangerous political opponents. It's There's a very, very long track record that makes um, Zelensky's fears about being assassinated 100% plausible.
0: You've noted something in your reporting that... Russia's aggressiveness towards Ukraine is part of what gives regular Ukrainians their identity as Ukrainians. It's like the push and pull has completely changed how people inside the country see themselves. And it strikes me it's also given Volodymyr Zelensky a kind of identity. I wonder a little bit, without Vladimir Putin And all of the pushing he has been doing in Ukraine for years at this point, would there be the push for democracy? Would there be a Volodymyr Zelensky as we know him today?
1: There's no doubt that there is this identity formation that's happened in the course of the crucible of Russia's military aggression towards Ukraine. But I think that the other part of the story is that Ukraine geographically rubs up against the European Union. And especially in the Western part of the country, it's just so important to its sense of identity to think of itself as part of that European constellation. It's like, it's it's this poor neighbor that can kind of, is aspiring to achieve what it sees over its border. And so I think that that's driven a lot of Ukrainian identity as well. So it's not just that it's this negative response to to militarism and to attack. It's also part of this much more affirmative thirst to join kind of a liberal bourgeois world that it, it feels is like right there within its grasp.
0: Yeah, one of the more striking scenes from Servant of the People that I remember is <laughs> Zelensky gets a call from Angela Merkel, Hello. who's offering membership to the EU,
1: My congratulations
0: and then says, oh, no, 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 I didn't know I was speaking with Ukraine. Sorry, this call isn't for you.
1: Yes. I was calling to Montenegro.
0: it struck me that like that you're right that's going on at the same time there's the pushing from russia and it's those two things together that are are creating what we're seeing now both in volodymyr zelensky and in all of the people around him
1: indeed that's the struggle this ukrainian urge to be european versus the pressure that it exists from putin to remain part of putin's orbit and it's mostly at this stage, about the soul of the country and which way it's going to cast its gaze. Is it going to cast it towards Moscow? Or is it going to cast it towards Brussels?
0: You wrote that part of the reason why you think Ukraine matters so much right now is because its fate is, in some sense, our own. And I wonder if you can explain that a little bit.
1: Well, first of all, I still remember the 2016 election and as clumsily as he tried to do it, Vladimir Putin engaged in a very, very extensive campaign to undermine American democracy, to basically undermine the sovereignty of American voters by trying to manipulate the election on behalf of his preferred candidate. And as Joe Biden has framed... His own presidency, he's talked about this struggle between democracy and autocracy. And he's pretty explicit about connecting the domestic American struggle against right-wing authoritarianism with the global struggle against right-wing authoritarianism. And I've always thought about ukraine as as a fairly hopeful, Flashpoint in that struggle. It really felt to me like that it was an example of both the Ukrainian people just deeply craving a more democratic existence. It felt like one of the few instances in American foreign policy in the 21st century where our idealism was propelling us in a direction where we were ballasting this really important project that was succeeding. And now... To see it coming crashing down. It's just so dispiriting. It is a hammer blow against democracy.
0: Frank Four, I'm really grateful for your time. Thanks for talking to me.
1: Thank you so much.
0: Franklin Four is a staff writer over at The Atlantic. And that's our show. What next is produced by Daniel Hewitt, Carmel Del Shad, Elena Schwartz, and Mary Wilson. We are getting a bunch of help this week from Anna Rubinova and Laura Spencer, and we're led by Alicia Montgomery and Mary Harris. Thank you so much for listening. I'll catch you back here tomorrow.